0: Hi, and welcome to our fifth CIPR Engage podcast. In this conversation, we'll be exploring what it means to be a strategic communicator, to be seen as a strategic communicator and have the influence that comes with this. We'll look at what it means to be a professional and how communicators are elevating and repositioning themselves. Sharing their insight and experiences are Alex Aiken, Executive Director for Government Communications, James Powell, who's Head of Group Communications at Owen Mitchell and recently a Chartered CIPR member, and up first our host, Sarah Pinch, MD of Pinchpoint Communications, Independent Advisor to the Welsh National Assembly, Non-Executive Director at Manx Care, and on top of all that, co-opted trustee at the University of Bristol Students' Union.
1: We find ourselves in 2021 in a place that none of us expected to be. The entire world has been changed by the pandemic of COVID-19. And as communicators, we have found ourselves at the forefront of often having to deliver incredibly bad news, of having to manage incredibly complex information and many having to give advice to boards, some of which they've never met before. We've seen boards come forward and ask for interventions and advice in ways that have never happened before. And yet we know that there has been a huge amount of work undertaken both by the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, by other professional bodies and indeed by our own government to ensure that communications is a strategic management discipline. And we are seeing that progress. And I believe we have now an opportunity to ensure that the professionalism of communications is understood as a vital part of the success for all organisations, large, small, independently owned, nationally operated, government, private, public, and everything in between. So today's podcast is looking at how can we ensure that this opportunity if indeed my fellow speakers believe that it is an opportunity, can be harnessed and brought forward to ensure that organisations really do understand, communicate, listen and engage uh, with those people uh, for whom they are reliant upon, whether that's to make profit or to make change. So I'd like to bring in, first of all, uh, Alex, Alex, you have uh, a reputation for really driving forward the professionalism of communications within central government and indeed uh, local government before that. Uh, Do you believe this is a great opportunity for us?
2: Thank you, Sarah. I do. And I was uh, inspired by the uh, work of the CIPR in the early 2000s which is why at Westminster City Council we became chartered members of the um, uh, chartered uh, body. So uh, my success, if it is so, is built on uh, the shoulders of others and uh, we've learned a lot uh, from the CIPR. And that's why uh, when we thought we were getting through the pandemic, I got the CIPR and some of the other professional bodies together. And we sat uh, down uh, with the CIPR Director General and we produced an advisory report, which you can see on the uh, GCS uh, website, Government Communications Service, that set out some of the early learnings, because I think a theme of this conversation will be the necessity of learning. And we wanted to capture those lessons at an early stage. And we uh, did that and some of the things were expected about the importance of strategy over tactics. Some of the things were relatively new, like the fact that you need to provide a total communications offer to the board. You can't say the PR people are there and the marketing people are over there and, oh, I see internal comms are down the corridor. And on the point about internal communications, the advisory panel did recognize that internal communications was absolutely vital and had possibly been the Cinderella service so far.
1: Thanks, Alex. I think that's a really important point, isn't it? I think there's something that I always talk to boards about is that actually they're sitting on a whole load of people who could defend, um, increase awareness of, be their advocates for their brand. And often you're right, they're they're forgotten. The staff are the sort of last people on the list rather than the first people on the list.
2: I think that's uh, right. I mean, I remember when I was uh, asked at Westminster City Council to set up an internal comms team, it was like, Why bother with that? We have very exciting media relations and the wider public relations things. Why do I have to do that? I was forced to uh, do it. I was struck this week. I was visiting a communications team uh, working in central government and they were complaining that their internal comms channels were not working and they were doing websites and they were doing paper briefings and electronic briefings. And I said, look, great internal communications, as you've said, Sarah, is about people what you need is a traditional but modernized cascade where the chief exec says, right, this is where we're going, this is our mission, Uh, and every manager, every level communicates that back. And also, as you said during your introduction, we listen as well as broadcasting. And so the cascade takes messages back up the um, uh, chain as, as well. So I think that what I would say on internal communications is if, as internal communicators you find yourselves discussing the state of your intranet or the quality of your e-messages, you're in the wrong place. It's always about people talking to other people to inspire them to deliver that discretionary effort that makes organisations successfully.
1: Thanks. And James, we were uh, talking before we started recording here about your most recent accolade. Uh, I know it means an awful lot to you. Do you want to just um, talk about the importance of of having professionalism writ large, really, uh, and, and proof of it, James?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've been working as a communicator primarily, uh, going back to Alex's point, uh, internal communications. Um, and it still um, strikes me that when I talk to people, they don't see as as a professionalised practice sometimes. Um, and that's completely opposed to my, my own view, which is actually, um, to be an excellent communicator, you have to build up experience, but you have to um, consider that development is a key part of that. Um, and being a member of the CIPR, which I have been now for 10 plus years, um, gaining qualifications, uh, year in, year out, completing my CIPD cycle, And working up to chartered status hasn't been a tick box exercise. Uh, It's been something that I've been truly invested in because I believe the power of that development leads you to be a better communicator, leads you to help other people, leads you to share best practice, have great conversations, support your teams, and ultimately help your business, the organization you work for, your stakeholders, whether they be internal or external, understand the purpose of what you're trying to achieve and why and the role they have to play in it so i will always be invested in it and i will always talk about professionalization within the industry uh, because we're often working with people who are professionalized themselves whether they be accountants solicitors year in year out they're doing the same thing and uh, we should not be doing anything different and uh, as you can probably tell i'm quite passionate about it
1: well, many congratulations on becoming chartered. Uh, as, as having gone through it myself, it's a, it's an incredibly testing experience. But I think something that we would really, really recommend to anybody um, listening to our conversation today, and Alex, I know that's something that's been very important to you in, in the Government Communications Service, is that demonstration of worth. So as James said, if you're speaking to uh, people with other qualifications, being able to demonstrate that you yourself are qualified, and it's not just you know, flying by the seat of your pants and what you wrote on your fag packet. Although sometimes that can also be quite helpful. But Alex, talk talk to us a bit about how professionalism has become a bit of a watchword in in government communications.
2: Yeah, government communication, government uh, has uh, 26 uh, professions from uh, economists and engineers to scientists and communicators. And that responsibility means I felt very strongly that if my colleagues are going to get a hearing around the Ministerial and the Permanent Secretary desks. They need to really understand what professional is. Um, I agree with what James said and I agree with you, Sarah, that the charter status is very important. To me, professionalism means that we have a theory of practice, we have a code of conduct, we have case studies and we have standards. And then we have a curriculum uh, to uh, enable people to learn and through their professional development to test their success it was interesting well, what you said about fact packets well actually your um, uh, intuitive advice um, will of course be based on years of experience and case studies and the theory of practice and your learning so I don't think we should undersell ourselves that even off the top of my head we're probably saying things that um, are built on deep experience some successes and not a few mistakes I think um, uh, the point of uh, challenge I would bring in is I fear that communication colleagues get bored and want to do things differently on internal communications. And James uh, made these points eloquently, but actually there's a way you do internal communications, the engage for the success project set out the four principles of internal comms in terms of the vision for staff, engaging managers as a requirement, listening to staff and that's a novel idea and managers walking the talk. And that's how it should be done. And we all know that teams succeed if everyone knows their roles and implement them to a really high standard. But too often I get the impression that people want to create new and different roles to ways of doing things. So a bit of brilliant basics and leading to high standards creates professionalism, in my experience.
1: I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think that's something we um, – uh, talk about a lot in my company is how, you know, we might be able to answer a client's question really quickly, but that's because we've got collectively, you know, h- more than 100 years experience. And so, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Those, that kind of intuitive thing that you think is right. And and James, I, I don't know if you want to come in and talk a bit about some of those things that are explored in the chartership assessment, which is, you know, strategy and often that strategic thinking, it, we, we know what's right. And, and maybe... Maybe you want to pick up on Alex's point about why is there an obsession with reinvention all the time?
3: Well, I, I, you know, going back to the point around strategy, um, every business, every organisation, every industry should have a strategy to know where they're going. What's the end game? What's what's our future state look like? Where do we want to be? What's our vision? Now, as a communicator and as a communications team, we need to have that shared vision. We need to have that shared understanding as we build our own strategy Otherwise, it's completely out of tune. It's not aligned, and and why should anyone believe what we're saying? Um, so, when I look at the past twelve months, especially having a seat at that table, being a trusted advisor to the board meant that our communication strategy was completely in tune with the business strategy. So we could share that actually the outcomes and the outtakes of what we were doing would effectively help our colleagues. Would be in tune with what we were hearing from our clients, was based on really strong insight and essentially that we were protecting the business. Um, internal communications has been a key part of my role for, for a number of years, but equally making sure that's aligned with what we're saying externally. The, the grey areas don't really exist anymore um, and that's why it's ever important for there to be a joint up strategy between communications and the business covering all those various elements that Alex covered earlier.
1: I think that's absolutely right and I think goodness we've seen the grey areas almost completely disappear. You know, we've seen the insides of people's homes, we've seen people's families, we've we've you know, we've seen people very distressed. We've seen that that kind of lifting of of um if you like a a professional front. I think in terms of I must behave like this, I must pretend that I've got it all together has, has gone, I think, for a lot of organisations. And people want, if we go back to the points we were making, people want to hear from people. They really want to get to know the organisation that they're working with. And as as many people might know, I chair the Taylor Bennett Foundation and our young people, our ethnically diverse young people coming through the programme have very high standards about how they are expecting organisations to engage with them as people, as well as professionals and professional communicators but as individuals and Alex is that something that, that you see um changing perhaps in some of the ways that what might be seen as you know very serious government communications and at times thank goodness it is very serious government communications but there's also that real need for personal um uh, uh, connection isn't there
2: yeah, look, you're spot on. Um, I, I, I recently done a, a careers day for um, Pimlico Academy. And it was evident, although I was there to speak about both the civil service and uh, working communication, to a lot of the young people there, it was a very uh, diverse and very exciting uh, school. Uh, but they don't want to work for the civil service, it's boring. It was interesting. It was an interesting brand exercise for me. So when I sort of dropped the civil service, I said, Okay, so ultimately I worked for Boris Johnson. Then everyone changed because they were interested in that. And, uh, you know, then, then that, that, was, that was an interesting brand lesson for me. But I think perhaps more relevantly, when uh, we brought in our apprentices our 16-year-olds, there was some uh, sort of resistance from the civil service uh, from this. I mean, if we have a 16-year-old in the office, they won't be able to buy me a drink on Friday to thank me for my brilliant management <laughs> of them, some of my colleagues, and one or two of my colleagues uh, said. Well, we ignore that. Um, uh, when we uh, got our interns' program started, working with the Taylor Bennett Foundation, uh, 50 black and minority ethnic uh, interns, many of whom uh, have gone on to uh, good roles in government uh, comms, They bring a different skill set. They are, in what is a slightly cliched term now, digital natives. They represent communities that I do not. They bring an energy and they are the future leaders. So that's all upside. And I'm quite happy to cope with the higher standards. There is a two-way challenge. Yeah, you demand the best, quite rightly, but I need you to deliver the best. So we're gonna put in place the professional development that will teach you to be a data scientist or a behavioral expert, or whatever it is, as well as uh, being a brilliant internal communicator and core PR should not be forgotten as well.
1: And James, you know, you're working currently uh, with a firm of solicitors, not always uh, known for their humanity uh, at all times, although... Um, uh, I
2: think that's a hard thing.
1: <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> well, I... I suppose what what i'm thinking is you know a lot of what is our experience of of the law of, of the of le- the legal profession for most people being told off being read a set of rules and actually it's a little bit like you're saying about the brand exercise at the academy alex you know there's it's so much more than that and you know that humanity piece james have you seen that change in your um in in, in your in your area
3: yeah well, well i'll take you back a little bit further then so um My dad was a solicitor, Um, he worked his way up to become a solicitor, Uh, he went to the Open University to get his law degree, he's possibly one of the most human people (laughs) I know and if you met him you wouldn't have a clue what he did as a profession. Um, I didn't want to follow him into law because you have those preconceived ideas of what it might be like. Um, Actually I've I've now worked for Erwin Mitchell um, for the best part of four years. And our purpose line is expert hand, human touch. Um, And I feel really privileged to work with um, our legally qualified, incredible people who do fantastic things for our clients on a daily basis. They are the epitome of human touch. Um, So yeah, I mean, you don't know what you know until you experience it firsthand. and it's very difficult to to give a judgement on that until you experience it. And um, in terms of how they communicate, whatever we need from them in support of what we're saying as a group communications team, they're the first there, uh, and they'll probably be the last there at the end of the day as well because they're that committed. So, yeah, it, it, I could I could wax lyrical about the the company I work for and the people I work with. Because it's very easy to do. So they're fantastic. So, yeah, you, anybody is welcome to come and find out about how we work and uh, that human touch at any point. And, and I'd just like to say if you see our campaign, it's based on the human touch that matters and very much focused on inclusivity and diversity. So, yeah.
2: I, I think you are illustrating uh, Sarah's point, James, because expert hand human touch at Erwin Mitchell and Varsha, your client, your case study does both say that you need to say human touch because people might think, as I might think, as Sarah said about, well, perhaps that's missing. But I think there's a wider point, Sarah, in that lawyers have to be right because you don't want to uh, um, do a a housing uh, transaction or or a marriage or, God forbid, a divorce and get it roughly right. In PR, you can generally land in a zone where you can be roughly right. So perhaps that greater pressure... To be precisely right does mean why, why lawyers get the reputation that you've um, uh, offered.
1: <laughs> and I must say that we do a huge amount of work with lawyers and we're very grateful for their support. And my point, you know, my point, I made exactly the same point the other day to an NHS organisation. And I said, why on your website is every single picture to illustrate your hospital a building? where are the people? And and I suppose that's what I'm driving at here is that I think we have found ourselves going through a process over the last 18 months, which none of us ever thought we would go through. But we have seen the insides of everybody's kitchen. We have seen, you know, sometimes ill-advised placed photographs of people's, you know, family holidays or, you know, we've met people's children, whether that's uh, uh, officially uh, when they're interrupting their dad uh, on the news or whether that's um, in team meetings. There has been a humanization of how we interact with each other. And I guess I'm I'm driving it. I believe that that will be and is being reflected in how we operate as communicators. Um, I
2: think think that's right. Um, We all remember, and and, and the public responded to brilliantly, the stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives uh, campaign uh, last uh, March. Less well known is the look into their eyes campaign, which is the one we ran from January, uh, which used real people, uh, patients in hospital who'd agreed and signed up to be uh, the posters to lead the campaign uh, and that campaign had extraordinary cut through and impact. It's serious business and I'd rather not be running the COVID campaign. It's a campaign to mitigate death and, and, and uh, tragedy and so on. But it was a very powerful campaign because as you say people responded the images of other people and absolutely got the message that if you looked at a patient in a hospital and the idea you could break or bend the rules, you couldn't do it. And the public responded in a way uh, that has helped all of us.
1: And James, do you want to just talk a little bit more about what you um, see as as the kind of future of uh, maintaining uh, really good uh, internal communications? if so you talked about great passion of yours and ensuring that that organ- that, that that uh, target markets, audiences understand the humanity of, of what we're about um, and, and how we balance what what perhaps might be seen as counterintuitive, you know, professional services, human touch, as you said. Uh, I don't think uh, Alex and I are going to forget that. That's a really powerful um, phrase.
3: Yeah, well, I think the first thing is they're not mutually exclusive. So um, the voice that we talk about, so whether it be colleague voice, client voice, our own voice, everyone has an equal share of that or should have a more equal share than previously was the case. Um, There's always a time for cascade, but increasingly there's a need for conversation. Um, And and what we found is the more we have open those conversational channels and routes and the ability for anyone to be able to be part of that conversation, guess what, the better ideas we get. We increase diversity and inclusivity. Guess what, we find out new things that we didn't know before that adds to this stuff that we did know, that improves the stuff that has been working for us,
2: so. James, that's Mm. always been part of my frustration, in that the internal communications cascade is two-way. But people seem to forget that the route back up is the point of doing the cascade. It's the same way I find it slightly frustrating when we talk about communication and then say, "Oh, we got to listen as well." I mean, communication. When I last looked, we had two ears and one <laughs> mouth, and should communicate in that um, uh, proportion. But we forget the commu- i mean—and and, and like, endless people say to me, "Communication," when they mean broadcast. But this is part of the professional rigour. Do we need to form.
1: do? We need to change it. Do we need to change the name? Is would that help to talk about a conversation rather than cascade? <laughs> mouth and ears. <laughs>
3: yeah the simpler the, the better whenever we start trying to come up with new things we have to consider actually what's the purpose behind what we're trying to achieve um often i think as communicators we find it highly frustrating when we get to tactics first before we've considered what the purpose of what we're trying to achieve is and what we expect to measure and the behavioral change that we expect to see as a result, and for companies, organisations, government, what ultimately are we trying to achieve through that? Um, so tactics first, never um, strategy first, always.
1: Yeah, and and that that thing that that, that you've both mentioned about you know trying to do new things because you must do something new because new is always great. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's not, is it? Sometimes the try, well, A, we should always try and test um, through through evidence. But, you know, I think there are many individuals who are frustrated by chief execs coming in after the weekend and having this great idea that everything needs to change tomorrow. It's not always the best option, is it?
2: I think that's right. I mean, to think of a recent example during the fuel crisis, when, You are around the top table, and uh, what do you do to mitigate the fuel crisis? And essentially, we decided to do less rather than more. And we sought the advice of behavioral scientists. We looked at the opinion polling. We looked at the digital media sentiment. And um, uh, we recognized that government communicating, in the sense of broadcasting, would probably add to the problem rather than uh, mitigate the. Uh, extraordinary levels of fuel purchase that were going uh, on. Um, that is an example, and we did do uh, some uh, communication during that, but it was quite a battle to say to the people around the table, less might be more, communication might add to the problem rather than help solve it.
3: Yeah, no, I, just, yeah I just like to agree with that. Often what we find is we're battling noise. Um, and the messages, the key messages that people need, the key information gets lost amid the noise. So, you know, when someone suggests a new channel, maybe, maybe it's going to be the best channel ever, but also does it add to the levels of channels we've got out there? Is a the channels proliferation? You know, when someone says, well, this is the key message or the key brand or whatever it might be, is it going to take away from actually what you're going to try and achieve of what people really need to hear? So we have to question... Not whether it, a new thing is bad, but is it going to affect value? Is it going to replace something effectively? Do we need to retire something instead? So I think there's a rounded picture. I agree with that.
1: And I, I think that there's a lot of complexity in, in communications and there are, are many, many, you know, theory books coming out of our ears, case studies coming out of our ears. But one of the things that I have been reflecting on um, post and I do flipping well hope it stays post homeschooling is actually clarity of messaging is so important and telling someone what you want them to do not what you don't want them to do, is also really important. So there's this balance, isn't there, between what we're doing of demonstrating that we are professional, that we do have qualifications, that we do have experience, um, and and if we're starting out that we're open to qualifications, we're open to gaining more experience, we're open to learning, but but also that don't be afraid of the, uh, I think it was your phrase, Alex, the brilliant basics. There's nothing to be ashamed about, about having a campaign that is brilliant, in its basics, is there?
2: That is exactly right, and I hope the stay-at-home campaign um, uh, is uh, an example about that. that goes back to the formation of the government communication service as the Ministry of, uh, as the Department for Information in 1917. Uh, that the, if you look back over those 100 years, uh, the brilliant campaigns have often been the simplest. But I would take the discussion on, Sarah, in terms of. It's also got to be a simple... You were talking about objectives and the precision of the objective. Uh, James said something very powerful earlier about you know his role is to protect the business. Three little words. Protect the business, I think, and James can tell me, uh, means making sure the business has a license to operate because there's a good reputation, which means it can do business, which means it can employ people, which means it can serve its customers and succeed. So the job of protecting the business is no small task. It is an integral part of the task. But too often, communicators and PR practitioners, when you say, so what do you do? They don't say protect the business. I was at a local government, local authority earlier this week, and I said, what do you do? And they said, we do media, marketing, internal communications, digital, etc., I said, no, you don't, you help build a brilliant community in this place because you keep them healthy and you support their prosperity, lives and and livelihoods. And they said, really? And then that of course takes into a, brings into a conversation about how do you measure what a communications team does, which we might get onto, but nevertheless, brilliant basics in execution and in purpose, I think are absolutely critical. And I think James illustrated that earlier.
3: Yeah, just yeah. Thank you, Alex. I think that point about protecting our business—a business—is much wider than just the the four walls that you 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 might work in. So when I talk about protecting the business, I'm talking about our colleagues, protecting their jobs, protecting their well-being, protecting our clients, making sure they have the very best service, and that uh, ultimately we're protecting our wider communities. So through the pandemic, we often considered what our actions, the actions we were taking, what impact they would have. On our wider communities, the charities we work with, the communities we work in, um, you know, what our people did on a daily basis had a, a massive impact. You know, we are a business of three thousand plus colleagues, but the impact we have on the wider community is, is much wider felt. And and from a comms perspective, I don't look at it as a will what we post on the internet make a difference. I look at it. A bit. As our advice and counsel to our overall strategic decision making, will that make a difference? And that's where our focus has been.
1: And I think, I think you know, I think we're all in fierce agreement here that, that, that the business objectives of the organisation, or, or 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 you know whatever kind of uh, company you're working in, have to be reflected in the communications objectives, don't they? And I remember you know starting my first career in 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 comms more than twenty years ago, and you know the the, the comms strategy was sort of literally in a completely opposite direction to the strategy of the organisation and I think we have seen that come together and we also have seen the the need for much more robust evaluation um and and I know um, Alex you've done huge amounts of work on this so has the institute uh, James I'm sure you have as well in in your organisation um can I just ask both of you you know it, it, If someone's listening and thinking, oh, my God, people are saying to me, you know, how do I demonstrate success? And I've just been running and running and running and running for the last 18 months trying to, you know, keep the team together, keep myself together, keep the messaging going, listening, feeding back, evaluation. I haven't got time. What what, what would you say?
3: Sarah, so this will be where uh, Alex probably builds on this quite heavily, but we use the OASIS model, which obviously comes from the government communication service in our planning. So our team, um, as part of our strategic planning goes through that. So what are our objectives? Do they align to the business objectives? If they don't, they're not objectives for us to follow. So they come straight out of our strategy, focus on our audience, who we're communicating and, and, and why, why are we communicating them? What are we expecting from them? What are they saying now? What are they are going to say in the future? What is our overall strategy? So what's the path we're following? Does it follow the vision of the organization? Um, you know, through to implementation. So are we using the right channels, as we've discussed earlier? Um, are we being clear on what we expect and the timescales for delivery of those? And then obviously through to the, the last element, which you talked about there, which is evaluating. Now, if we can't effectively measure and show the outcomes of what we're doing through communication, why are we bothering in the first place is my my question. Because to get better, to learn, to understand, to pick up from the mistakes, to build for the future, you have to be able to show what you've achieved through what you've just done. Uh, Alex can probably say that much more eloquently than I've done. He's much closer to it, but it's definitely using those frameworks, using the OASIS model as an example, is how we can can get better as communicators.
2: Well, I I completely, and thank you, James, for saying that, but you said it very eloquently, and I'm not going to uh, repeat it. I agree with you. Uh, What I would say, Sarah, is I've seen two communication teams this week who have both told me they're too busy doing stuff to measure what works. I think that is unprofessional. And James has talked about OASIS. There is another approach to public relations, S-O-S, which stands for sending out stuff. And the communications teams I've talked to are busy sending out stuff and they say we're busy and we're overburdened and there's too few of us. It's like, well stop. So to address your point to people who say they're too busy, write down all the things you've done in a week. And work out which ones are the most important and rank them. And I bet you'll find the first, second, third, fourth produce far more out there and protect the business, to borrow James's phrase, much more than five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then there's a tough discussion with the chief exec or the lead partner to say, actually, if we're going to help you within the resources, which have to be paid for, then I advise that we focus on these things. And we can do more but we will do them less well. And that way you create the headroom to do the scoring and evaluation that James referred to.
1: And I think it's important, isn't it, that the evaluation as the the OASIS model and other models demonstrate is intrinsic to the model, to to your work. It's not a, oh, let's do that later, or we better do that because we want to enter an award, which I have heard more times Mm. than I care to remember. Mm. But actually it becomes part of that living and breathing process that you go through.
3: Well, well, Sarah, I mean, it, it's not just around communications or communications teams. It's not about proving our worth. It's not saying the work we do is fantastic, which often it, it can be. It's about the fact that our stakeholders, whether they're internal or external, have an expectation that we'll be able to tell them what change has happened as a result. Exactly. You know, positive or negative. And, and if we're not measuring what we're doing, if we're not using insight and data, then how are we possibly going to respond to that question?
1: Absolutely, and um, I was I was um, privileged to be asked to judge the NHS Communicators Awards, and a number of those spoke really passionately about the importance of evidence based work, um, uh, evaluation, measurement, and how you know I I always say uh, to my team when we're particularly when we're uh, working with the NHS or indeed any public sector organisation is this is public money, and actually even in the private sector, James, you know this is spending money is a really serious Business, and I get really fed up when comms people say, "Oh, I'm not very good at the figures," because I'm just like, you need to be really good at the figures, and you need to understand the figures.
3: And and Sarah, I think I think that's fair. And look, I you know, talk about learning. I'm as guilty as anyone. Ten years ago, I probably had a similar opinion. My my idea of thinking about figures and about measurement was nowhere near where it is now. But you learn, um, and that's why we're here today to talk about our experience is to talk about professionalisation, to talk how the industry has moved on and what we need to keep it moving on and keep it in line with the strategic involvement of other industries and businesses and, and, and the government.
1: Completely. So, what do we think is going to be the next big learning for our profession? Probably should have warned you that I was going to ask you that. But um, you know, I think in a sense the, that if that planning, that evaluation, those models are there. They are being very widely used. And Alex, as James has demonstrated, the Oasis model is a is available for anybody to use and follow, isn't it? And and, and I'm sure um, there there'll be a link to that for for people who want to see it. But what do you think is going to be the next big challenge in terms of Continuing to develop uh, our professionalism.
2: Well, I'm I'm going to focus on on data, um, uh, partly to just mildly show off. Uh, in that, you know, I worry as a 55 year old uh, man that I will become redundant and I won't be invited on these shows anymore. So I have to keep learning. Uh, and I've done a course in contract management, which involved taking a small short exam. And I've just done uh, a civil service course in uh, data science uh, for leaders. I had to score 70% in this course, and I got to the final question, and I was on 69%. Embarrassing to fail. I got three marks on the final question, and I finished on 71. So I passed, and I got a certificate. And I'm very proud of this, as you can tell. But I do want to use that little story just to illustrate the importance of us continuing to all learn. My answer to your question is the proper use of data and understanding its use and its uh, abuse And I think that is one thing I would focus on as a technical skill. The other broader thing which uh, I have been frustrated uh, by is leadership and communication colleagues who lead because they are able to influence, they build relationships and they know their profession inside out and they can convince uh, others. So I think that those are, perhaps you would expect me to say that, but those are two things where I think, we could spend some time um, uh, learning and improving and would have success from.
1: And I have a, an enormous passion for leadership. And um, and I, I'm always keen to talk to communicators about how we should be not only having an eye on leading our own teams really well, but the contribution that we can make to the overall leadership, not just of the organisations that we work in, but others. Uh, and giving back and becoming school governors and joining boards because I think communications is an extremely valuable tool for leadership Um, James what what do you think might be some of the up-and-coming challenges? Yeah
3: well I think I think it's great time for that question because obviously coming out of the chartered assessment day we had three t- uh, three key topics to focus on uh, we've talked about strategy quite a bit already Alex has talked there about leadership um, and I think our role as leaders then traverses into our role as counsellors, almost as as guidance, as a conscience to the people that we work with. Um, yeah. I often find myself having conversations, uh, very much in that area where we're talking about what 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 the reaction to things is gonna is gonna feel like through people. So uh, then you get into the, all that that the realm of responsible business. Um, you know, We're moving to the likes of ESG, You know, being a leading, responsible business. We talk about greenwashing a lot nowadays. I think those topics around ethics, essentially around the topic of ethics, is going to be key for our industry. And we have a huge role to play, a huge role as communicators, to be that conscience, to stand up for what we believe is right and to, to work in the most ethical way possible. And that will only help our business, protect our business, as I said before.
1: And and will only help with some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of being human, in being um, clear, in being trusted, in being honest, in being um, able to affect change. And I think, you know, again, um, with the young people that I meet through the Taylor Bennett Foundation, you know, ethics is really, really important to them. Understanding the organisation that they're joining, you know, are they really serious about the things that they're saying? Um, and, you know, and, and young people who do due diligence in a way that I did not when I was starting my career. Um, I, I don't know if either of you want to comment on that, but I think it's both the ethics of communications, i.e. being clear and, and telling good stories and making sure that they are based in, in, um, in data uh, but also the overall, and I guess this links to strategy and leadership as well as ethics, the overall ethics of of the organisation?
2: Look, we're very um, uh, clear I and mean, working in a political environment is uh, contested, is uh, challenging, uh, but the civil service code is so second nature and the Government communication Service uh, Code of Ethics about only spending money on things where you're asking the public to do something, spending money uh, wisely, and, and so on, all these documents that are published. So I'm pretty clear and watch very carefully about how we implement our communication work. The point you make about colleagues is interesting as, is, as well in that they do come with the sort of strong views that uh, you uh, set out. I think that I need to make sure that all sides of the debate are represented when we have discussions about uh, broader social policy. And also there is an education uh, argument to be made that particularly in government, where you are dealing with policy choices, explaining to people why government does things and why government can do things and not others is, is, is really important uh, as well. Um, but certainly on the ethical point, when we sit around the table doing uh, discussions on national security. There is on the table the summary of the Chilcot recommendations uh, from the uh, Iraq inquiry, just to remind everyone not to engage in groupthink, not to all follow their leader, not to forget to bring evidence to the table and to speak truth to power. And the cost in blood and treasure from the Iraq invasion, of course, is a pretty salutary reminder to all of us about Bringing our best judgment and absolutely ethical approaches to the discussion.
3: Yeah, I mean that that's hugely powerful, Alex. And thinking about it at a more local level within our organisation, over the past year and a half, we we co-create across the organisation our DNA, and a key strand of that is about valuing you for who you are and what you bring into the organisation. So going back to that group thing, moving away from that now. We're not saying we're perfect. We've got a long way to go. Like you know, most other people, we're learning on a daily basis. But to be truly inclusive, to allow people to bring truly who they are to the business, to engage in conversation, whether you be a client or a colleague of ours, it's it's hugely important because that's where we can you know we can continue to improve.
1: I I sit as an independent advisor to the Senate, and um, I was uh, really lucky to be asked to join the staff awards last December. And they made this incredibly powerful video about everybody saying why they were proud to work for the Senate. And uh, they were asked to bring something or wear something that demonstrated who they were, and it was the most wonderful visual representation of difference. Um, And 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 I think you know we can we can learn a lot, can't we, by 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 really doing the things that we say, and uh, you know, one of our watchwords in, in in the company is you mustn't just do the right thing; you must be seen to do the right thing, um, and 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 really demonstrate that and live that in a way that is um, engaging and real.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I'll just call out for for Lorian, uh, my former colleague, is now head of communications, and of course, she's a chartered uh, public relations uh, practitioner. But her journey uh, from, I think, starting in local government, certainly working for the uh, Government Communication Service through the Cabinet Office and now going to the National Parliament, I think is, also helps build our ethical awareness and certainly our professional practice because you've worked in a variety of different situations so you can see both sides and so you can see what to do to avoid getting into trouble and to do the right thing.
3: I was just going to build on your earlier point, Sarah, that actually all of that work means that to, to to support our communities, to support the, the various different people we work with or work for, we have to become true allies. Um and I know from a personal perspective, I've got a long way to go. I've got a I've got a lot of things that I need to do better that will help me in my role, will help the business and will help me support those people whose voice isn't as well heard as it should be. And I think the profession is going a long way to to support that.
1: I think that's right. And I think that one of the things I've been absolutely delighted about is the reverse mentoring scheme that the Charter Institute is running in, in partnership with the Taylor Bennett Foundation. And, um, you know, it's just been absolutely amazing. And I'm participating in that Um, and just having a few conversations with colleagues who are also part of the scheme. It's a real, well, to quote Professor Anne Gregory, who gave me the inspiration for it, it is a game changer. It is a game changer to sit opposite somebody, for whom you you are perceived, whether it's real or not, to be more experienced, more senior, uh, and to have some of your thinking challenged. And I think we must we must do that, mustn't we? And I think that is, uh, for my two pennyworth, I think that is the thing as communicators that we must continue to do in terms of uh, development for the future is to challenge ourselves you know to, to pick up the newspaper that you never read to go to a football match if you absolutely hate football to to listen to the opera if you've never done it you know to do something that is outside of our uh, comfort zone and and to challenge our thinking um and and i think that is really really important to us um I think we're nearing the end of our uh, conversation together and I'd like uh, each of you if you would just to sum up some of the things that you think people listening to this uh, could reflect on in terms of those key areas that we've talked about and um, they are I think about strategy, uh, the importance of of data, uh, providing leadership uh, and remembering that everything we do must be driven by ethics uh, and by our experience um so uh, Alex uh, I'll come to you first and and then to James
2: thank you uh, Sarah it's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, James uh, today I just touched briefly on strategy evaluation and uh, learning from being outside your comfort zone uh, strategy, is often misunderstood and certainly a much abused word in terms of communication and strategic communication strategy is the combination of ends ways and means and we usually define the ends the goals the ways we usually know how to get there we can advise on that but are the means are the resources the pounds uh, sufficient to deliver the ends and too many pr campaigns are asked to deliver the moon on the budget of a bicycle. And that is where PR people have to stand firm and say, well, we can do so much, but we can't do everything. On evaluation, colleagues listening to this call, where do I start? You start by measuring the things that you can, your inputs and your outputs. And what you can do is go and talk to people. I uh, knocked back a comms plan I saw recently that sought to impose on a group of organisations a Whitehall view, and I just said, you haven't talked to them. Evaluation starts at the beginning of a project. Go out and talk to these good people, find out what they're really like, walk in your shoe, their shoes, and then you'll have a better idea. And colleagues did that, and we got a better campaign as a result. Finally, um, uh, I've got to mention the magnificent Arsenal Football Club, who, of course, are uh, winners. And uh, the men haven't won so much time, so many times this season though they will. But taking my daughter, who plays football, to the uh, see the Arsenal women at the Emirates uh, Stadium was, of course, an education for me. Uh, and she and I enjoyed it. But also, looking at the way they play it was much more beautiful than the men, which taught me a little bit about football tactics that I wouldn't uh, have otherwise recognised, and also a lot about uh, teamwork, which should be at the heart of our practice. Thank you, James.
3: How do I follow that? Well, firstly, Alex, being an Aston Villa fan, I wish you absolutely no luck on Friday night. Yeah, I'm going. Uh, so, no, hopefully you enjoy that. But but in all seriousness, so, so I guess I'd look at what's the... I think there's a question around what's the value proposition for, for our industry, for communications. And I, I had a similar conversation with my team yesterday, and the two things that stuck in my mind were having a clear and coherent narrative. So what's, what's the story we're trying to tell? What's the purpose behind what we're trying to say? And basing that on very strong insight and aligned to the business strategy, which we talked throughout this, uh, this uh, session on, I think it's about sharing success. We have to engage with our audiences in meaningful, meaningful conversations about the roles we have to play in making our business a success. It's focused on outcomes and outtakes, which you see through the OASIS model. It's about health and well-being. It's about recognising our approach to communicating is evolving. Uh, We've all lost face-to-face interaction to a degree. We've moved to more virtual engagement. And it's more important than ever to stay connected. So how do we go about doing that? We talk about agility a lot, and and the word agile is used and misused uh, on a daily basis but for me it's about clarity and speed of sharing information about decision making which alex knows only too well um and making sure we're able to flex and adapt our approach to those needs whether they be colleague clients or across the country and and the globe it's very much about relationships and just one more to come from me you know we, we have to ask ourselves questions we have to listen and act on feedback and as great communicators we should be doing that and finally it's about purpose You know, going back to Simon Sinek, it's all about why. Why are we doing anything? What are we trying to achieve? Are we gaining loyalty and belief in what we do? Are we enhancing the credibility and trust in everything we do as communicators back to our ethics? Purpose, strategy, vision. And that's enough for me, Sarah, I think.
1: Well, thank you both so much. I've, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. And um, I think the final word from me, and we haven't really got round to talking about what we've learnt uh, from when things go wrong, but I think it's just that don't be afraid uh, to try things. It won't always go right. And to quote my seven-year-old daughter, when I really messed up with something I was trying to cook the other day, but mummy, all you've done is make a marvellous mistake. And we're told to make marvellous mistakes at school all the time, because otherwise, how do we learn? And so there, from, from the mouths of babes, I hope uh, people have really uh, taken something for, from this discussion, I know I have. And um, and, and thank you both very much for, for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to our guests for an enlightening and far-ranging discussion, and thanks to you for joining us for this conversation. If you'd like to explore any of the Government Communications Service frameworks, such as the OASIS model discussed, you can find them at gcs.civilservice.gov.uk or by searching for Government Communications Service. It would be great if you can continue the conversation on Twitter and LinkedIn with the hashtag CIPR Engaged. And we'll be back again in the next quarter with episode six of our CIPR
1: Engage podcast.